We've been looking at the story after two years, walking through Mark, Mark abruptly ends. And so what happens next is the question that the readers were meant to ask, uh, or the hearers of that first message of the gospel. And go and find out is the answer. Go and see. Uh, Christ is risen. That changes everything. Luke, who we heard from Acts, he wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then the Acts of the Apostles, he tells more of the story. So we've been looking into Luke 24, and now Acts 1, and then Acts 2 for these few weeks. Because what happens next is what always happens. God shows up to his people. God comes. Sometimes when we least expect it, aren't anticipating it, maybe even doubting it, he shows up. And so we want to be in that place, ready and receiving. How incredible this message. Jesus is alive. They've now seen him. They've eaten with him. He's walked amongst amongst them. Remember, they, they saw him crucified. They buried him in the tomb. They did not expect to walk with him on the road. Though he had said he was coming back, he surprised them all. He shocked them all. Now, clearly something is different about Jesus. He seems to conceal his identity. Perhaps that's a way of saying to all of us when Jesus may be in our midst when we're wholly unaware of it. When we're not expecting it, he is with us. But he makes himself known. He does reveal himself. It seems that he can show up and disappear at, at kind of at will. At least that's their experience with him. Perhaps that is readying the disciples for ultimately his, his ascension, where he will leave this world forever in order to send the Spirit. But he is alive. The message has been spreading. According to Paul, reflecting on this time, these 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, then he appeared, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. What is Paul saying to the early church, the church in Corinth who wouldn't have seen Jesus risen. It was removed from Israel. And, and again, as Paul's letters would go out and be distributed and sent to, to places, he wrote to, to Rome and wrote to uh, Asia and to Turkey, to various churches. He's saying to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, you haven't seen him, but, but over 500 have and many are alive. We have firsthand witnesses, and perhaps even to some, as, as you move and as you travel, because many were assembled in Jerusalem leading up to the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. Perhaps there's some that you will even hear from. You can find them. You can write to them. Go and find it for yourself. That's what Paul is, is saying. So over 500 have seen, the disciples have seen. Now, the disciples, we know of, we often think of the 12, but there were there were many. There were dozens. In fact, that sometimes there were hundreds. If being a disciple is a follower of Jesus, drawing near to Jesus. In fact, there were crowds of thousands. They were fickle at times. We should be wary of, of large crowds. They didn't remain with him. But there were many more than 12 who followed Jesus faithfully. In fact, the 12 weren't present at his crucifixion. It was others who were, who were still there. In fact, some faithful women. And these women were the first to hear and to see as they continued uh, to follow Jesus. And we've looked at that story. So there's many. Over 500 have seen the risen Christ. The word and the testimony of way more than 12 
has now spread. We ate with him, we, we saw him, we touched his scars even, Tem- Thomas could say. Why then are there only 120 gathered a few days later at Pentecost? Where are the other 380? Where are the extended family and friends and neighbors of these firsthand witnesses? There's something wrong in this story, isn't there? Why are there only 120 left? Jesus has repeatedly, had repeatedly told them in those 40 days, listen, Luke 24, 49, we've looked at this. Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in this city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Luke describes it again in Acts 1-4. We heard it read. While Jesus was eating with them on, on one occasion, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise Jesus gave repeatedly in those days to his disciples. That word must have spread. They shared it, didn't they? Was there anything that they wouldn't believe from Jesus at this point? Weren't all of their doubts shattered? We saw him die. He's here before us. And he's telling us to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know fully what, that's, what that means. They didn't. Though you were, you were baptized with water, full immersion, you'll be baptized with the Spirit. That sounds pretty intense. Wait in Jerusalem. Do not leave. Stay. Why are there only 120 left? Gathered, praying, waiting. Acts 1.8, Jesus' final, some of his final words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This incredible event that will be empowering, will change the way that they see life, will bring new life. In the same way that baptism symbolized the bringing of new life, so this coming of, of the Spirit, amongst other things, will bring even a new, a newer, a renewed life for all who wait. Incredible promises that they must have shared. I have to believe that they shared Why then are there only 120 remaining? Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We back up into what we heard read in Acts 1, 12 to see who the they are. They were all together. They returned to Jerusalem. When they entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and the rest of those 12 plus or the 11 plus one, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's a pretty amazing statement. We know from the journey, his brothers, Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, did not believe in him. John describes it more than Mark. Here they are now. Jesus has convinced his own brothers that he is God. If you have a brother, can you convince him of anything? <laughs> Let alone that. What would he call you? What would he say? It's what they thought originally, but here they are. 
Believers. Believers and their brother. Something radical has happened. Why are they amongst just 120? That's baffling to me. On, the, on their own testimony, on relaying the promise, did they not all have amongst them a few close friends that might come with them? What did, what did that invitation sound like? I have to believe they gave it. Come and join us. Jesus said to wait and to pray. The promise of the Holy Spirit is coming. Now put yourself in the context of, uh, if you can, and <laughs> first century Jewish man or woman, or perhaps, perhaps not, perhaps irreligious. Come and worship with us. Come and gather. We're, we're going to wait upon the promises of God. And then what is the question? We don't know. We're going to pray. And we're going to wait. Well, how, how long? We don't know. Maybe all night. Maybe days. As long as it takes. Yeah, I think I have a, uh, a work event. I'm, I'm up against a, a deadline. Uh, maybe, maybe next time. Let me know how that goes. Uh, yeah, keep me posted. <laughs> if you did get a nibble... Okay, so tell me more. Tell me more about where will you be? Well, there's this little bit unknown upper room. We'll give you instructions. It might be pretty crowded. It's probably going to be a little bit stuffy. Bring some water. And when does it start? When everyone gets, when everyone gets there, we'll begin. How long does it go? Well, there's not really an ending time. We can, and then what's going to happen? Something supernatural. The Spirit of God is going to come. Can you tell me more? Or, or not. They didn't have many details. They weren't promising entertainment or a show. They weren't promising a self-help or motivational message. They didn't have bouncy houses and giveaways for kids. Heck, even a kid's class. In that context, so if you were Jewish, what was happening in the city at that time was a week-long celebration, a festival, a feast, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, where, harvest, where you, they celebrated the abundance of God. The work was done, we celebrate. A week-long festival of eating, feasting, music, dancing, drinking, in the streets, in one another's homes, in other gathering places. That's what was happening in the city. So you are a believer and you're inviting your friends to come to a stuffy upper room to do something that you can't really describe, that you're just trying to learn yourself, called prayer and waiting for the promised spirit. Now it starts to make more sense that 120 are gathered. Maybe that's a good turnout. And that's where the Church of Christ was born. Perhaps God's greatest work comes through the last and least likely ones. Uh, 
Perhaps it is God's desire to work amongst the few, the unassuming and unimpressive by world standards, because this is who he is, because in this he is most glorified and magnified when he takes small things and unexpected things and does majestic and radical things. If we know our history, we should be emboldened by our present reality. This is what happens next. God takes those whom the world says no, the world says unimpressive, insignificant, and does amazing things, comes to them, fills them, calls them, empowers them. This is story after story through our scripture. The least likely of leaders becoming a ruler, a judge, a king. The untrained small armies triumphing. The old and barren becoming the father and mother of multitudes. Slaves becoming masters. Mustard seeds, yeast, 30, 60, 100-fold harvest. <laughs> the list goes on. 120 gathered in a stuffy upper room filled with the Spirit of God, and the world would never be the same. The Church of Christ was born. So fast forward a little history, a little more history. Fast forward 1,800 years from that Pentecost, give or, give or take. Late fall, 1881. A former Presbyterian minister by the name of Albert Benjamin Simpson was living in Manhattan, ministering amongst the poor, sometimes outcasts, the immigrants coming by the, by the boatload in those days into the harbor of New York City, the nations coming to his city. God had stirred and broken his heart to give himself fully to that ministry in order that he actually walked away from a fairly prestigious post in one of the larger Presbyterian churches in the country at that time. More to that story. But Albert Benjamin Simpson had a heart for the immigrants. And so he called a prayer gathering, a vigil, for the poor amongst them, for their hearts ultimately, for all who would come to be filled, to be stirred, to be empowered and emboldened to do whatever it takes to reach the poor, to serve the immigrants coming to their city. November 20th, 1881, a Sunday night, is the date and the time that they set. He invited many of his close friends, some, fa some family members, fellow pastors in the city. Dozens, if not hundreds, of invitations went out to come and to pray, to seek the Spirit that we would be empowered and emboldened to make God known, especially amongst the last and the least, coming to our city. We seek his heart and his wisdom. Hundreds of invitations, perhaps, went out. The night came. Six people showed up, including Albert and his wife. Six. Probably a mistake. It was a Sunday night in late fall. I'm sure the, the Giants were playing the Steelers. <laughs> There's a game going. Any number of reasons or excuses or maybe next times given. Six came. Undeterred, they knelt and thanked God that they were poor, few, and weak. They knew their history. They knew that God loves to work amongst the last and the least for his glory. Simpson said, we threw ourselves upon the might of the Holy Spirit, and he never failed us. Yes. From that six, 
the New York Gospel Tabernacle began. A church was planted. That wasn't the, in, that wasn't the intention. It wasn't the intention of the gathering. It was to pray, to seek the Spirit in order to serve the lost and the hurting in their city. From that church came a movement we are still a part of today, the Alliance. That strange name, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Aren't we both? Aren't we both? And yes. But the heart was never to become a denomination. It was to become a movement of people who had a heart for the last and least around the globe. All with that heart, stay in your own churches, was Albert's original, original heartbeat. Here's a new one that we are stirred to, to follow. But don't come join us. Go be and serve in your cities, in your places. But if you have a heart, and we need to raise up the next generation to reach the last and least, to send. So they started training institutes, missionary schools. They, they began the, what became uh, the world's most widely circulated missions magazine, communication, uh, that's still running today, but in that day, uh, it was one of the only with uh, live updates and pictures that would be sent and distributed. The movement began from that six, and over the last 150 years, thousands of missionaries who were willing to give up all were trained and sent upon the support of the network, the Christians and the Missionaries Alliance, to send to the last and least. And today, still, those that would call themselves a part of the Alliance movement or church, we are 13 to 14 times larger internationally than in the United States. The vision was fulfilled by the grace of God, is being fulfilled. Fast forward 50 years from 1881 to mid-1920s, the date, give or take, the date is a little bit fuzzy, Seattle, Washington, a few faithful men and women from Emanuel Bible Church in Seattle and a few students of Simpson College, named from Albert Benjamin, one of the newer training institutes located, targeted in Seattle because it was closer to China. It was the closest place they started, you know, from New York, let's get closer to China because that's where we're going. Just a small little two-year training institute in Seattle. And these few students, along with a few faithful from Emanuel Bible would gather to pray for the lost and the hurting in their city and for their hearts to be opened up unto the ends of the earth as God would lead them. Somehow, this part of the story is a little fuzzy, their eyes and hearts were stirred to an, a new settlement, an outpost called Redmond, Washington. At that day, a population of 438 to go and serve to teach the Bible, to preach. So every Sunday in those days, mid-20s, one or two of those new students, likely in their early 20s or late teens, would hitch a ride or walk or bike to Madison Park to get on a ferry on Sunday morning to go across Lake Washington to Kirkland where someone with transportation it's told like an old uh, flatbed truck would pick them up and take the hour drive to Union Hill, Redmond, Washington, where for all who would gather from that region would be taught the scriptures, would pray together, would be encouraged, would wait on the Spirit. And they gathered in the building that we call the Fellowship Hall, built right around 1900. At that day, 
a one-room schoolhouse. That went on for years until there was a church that was born from a handful of faithful people. And for now nearly 100 years, the gathering of a few, sometimes a dozen, sometimes dozens, but often not more than that, has remained unbroken in this location from a few that would gather to pray, to wait upon the Spirit, to ask God to meet them, to move them as he saw fit. This is our history. Is it our reality? Over the course of 100 years, thousands have been encouraged in faith in this place, have grown up like in a greenhouse, and have been sent and replanted in various places, cities, states, and countries. Some with the direct call and mission, some because God was moving them in other ways. Perhaps we're in good company. Is it our responsibility to gather with greater anticipation, to pray with greater urgency, to believe with greater fervency, and to throw ourselves upon the Spirit, or is it God's responsibility not to fail us, to come upon us, to fill us, to convict us, to transform us, to empower us, and to send us? Yes. You know it was not neither or. God's been writing our story for a long time. May our history become our reality. We are in good company if our hearts collectively burn with a desire for the Holy Spirit to be with us, to fill us, to empower us, to change us, for his glory to be made known amongst us and in our world. With hunger and thirst will we pray, Spirit of God, come. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you that we are few, that by worldly standards, we are weak and insignificant, because in this, the power of your spirit can change the world. We believe it. Maybe in the smallest acts of faithfulness, love, and service, our God is magnified in an unexpected way. Since we're time traveling a little bit, let's go back 3,500 years or so, give or take. God's people, Israel, had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They found themselves wandering in the desert. They found themselves untethered, no foundation. At times, they experienced God's manifest presence and provision in a powerful way. At other times, they doubted. They wanted to go back to how things were. They didn't know what the future held. It was hard where they were. It was uncertain. At least we know what, what, what was certain. Though it was slavery, there was some security. They wavered. Because of that wavering that expressed itself in many different ways, Moses, their leader, met with God, pleaded with God for his grace and his mercy, again for his people. God told Moses, Exodus 33 is the chapter, Moses, go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, 
I will give it to you. If you know the story, the tone has changed here from God being the leader and the deliverer, the rescuer, to now, Moses, you go. You seem to want it your way anyway, all of you, you go. I will be faithful to my promise. I'll give you that land. I will send an angel before you to go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you or I will consume you on the way. You're a stiff-necked people. I could unpack that. God's presence was very real and tangible with them, and they still struggled to believe. Moses began to plead with God in prayer, Exodus 33, 13, remember God, remember, as if we need to tell God to remember, but we're declaring his promises. We join in that company when we sing these praises, sing these promises of God. God has not forgotten. We're declaring, we know who you are. Be who you are. Remember, this nation is your people. We are your people, Moses says. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with us unless you go with us? What else will distinguish your people from all other people on the face of the earth? God's presence alone is what Moses knew they needed. Not just the land, not the promise, not an angel with them. God himself with his people was all that mattered. If you are not with us, do not send us. God answered him affirming his heart and his prayer. I will do the very thing you asked. I am pleased with you. And I know you by name. This faith and this desire for the presence of God, we're not told, maybe there was, maybe there was much more to that conversation. There was clearly repentance. There was clearly confession. Moses on behalf of the people. But it was the desire for the presence of God that pleased God most. This is who our God is. And Moses said, God, show me your glory. Show me more of you. And God, the Lord, Yahweh, said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Will this history be our reality? All of it. Wherever you enter into this story from 100 years ago, 150, 2,000, 3,500, when God's people come with a pure desire to see him, to know him, and to be with him, he answers that prayer in his way, in his time, just a few of us gathered today, not significant by the world standards or impressive. Will we be faithful, prayerful, humble, waiting, and longing? We know God's desire is to be with us, to fill us, to empower us, to make himself known that we would make, other, make him known to others. As we respond, as we come to the table, as we pray, Confess your spiritual wandering like our forefathers and mothers, our doubt, our lack of place in this world, our uncertainty, 
And let's call upon God to be who he's always been, to do what he's always done. He does not need to be reminded, but we declare it, God, may it be. This is what happens next for God's people. That's what always happens. And I'll pray a prayer from the Apostle Paul as we move further into this response. Paul praying for the church, so we receive this prayer. I pray that out of God, our Father's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, that's all here, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And whatever you are praying today, hear this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.